Hi there, and welcome to the Sound Methods Podcast. My name is Andrew Tasselmeyer, and I'm a musician based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In this interview series, I'll be speaking with a variety of artists in order to probe their creative process and motivations. I'm hoping to shed some light on their practice and give you some valuable insight into the work that they do. In this first edition of the show, I'm honored to be speaking with my good friend, Marcus Fisher. I've been a fan of his music and visual art for a long time now. And in recent years, I've been fortunate to grow closer to him after we've toured together in the US and Europe. Marcus is an interdisciplinary artist and musician based in Portland, Oregon. He is a first-generation American artist who creates, collects, and transforms sound into immersive, layered compositions that accompany performances and exhibitions. His site-specific assemblies of exposed speakers, tape loops, and objects are characteristic of his installations, paired with melodies of restraint and tension. He has released numerous recordings, both solo and collaborative, on 12K and has also contributed two soundworks and two performances to the 2019 Whitney Biennial as the sole artist from the Pacific Northwest included in the edition. Marcus has been awarded residencies at the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation and at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Art. Marcus has performed and recorded as a solo artist, as a member of Wildcard, and in collaborations with artists Taylor Dupree, Aki Anda, Ryuchi Sakamoto, Lara Ortman, Stephen Vitiello, Calexico, Raven Chacon, and Simon Scott. Without further ado, here's my interview with Marcus Fisher. All right, Marcus, thanks for joining me here. I have a lot of questions that I want to ask you, um, but I think I'm going to start with one that made me laugh. I was, I was thinking about it a little bit, but I wanted to ask you about the minimal grunge tag that I always see on your, <laughs> <laughs> on your music online. I think I've seen it on SoundCloud and Bandcamp a few times, but you've tagged it as minimal grunge in style. And then I know you've got those stickers with the quote unquote ambient, you know, word on there. And I'm just kind of wondering if you were to think about it and explain it yourself, how you would define the music that you make. And do you even care about labels? Is there something that you're intentionally trying to go for? Or how do you define the music that you make? Yeah, I mean, I think that the music that I make, although my follow a certain continuum, I think that it changes depending on the project. So I don't know, I just, the minimal grunge thing was like, I just started thinking about um, like, like sub genres and genres and like that have a, I mean, I guess it's kind of like a nickname, like, you know, like you don't choose your nickname, people like nickname you and then that's like how it happens. So it's like, you know, music journalists are the ones that invent genre names, not the people that are actually making it. And I, don't, I really don't think it's important for the people creating something to to be the ones to define it. I think that you kind of put art out in the world and then, you know, it means different things to different people or people feel the need to put it in a, in a box yep. and label it um, so that it's easier to package or it's like shorthand for something. But my idea with the minimal grunge thing was that it's like... Um, apart from it being like 
making me laugh. It's like, I think because it's like primarily guitar based music from the Northwest that like doesn't yeah. <laughs> fit in the, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not rock music. It's not, you know, like, yeah. So it's, it was just like kind of funny because I was just thinking about like regional music and yeah. So if, if I was to pick a regional Pacific Northwest genre, it would be, I'd be hard pressed to find something better than grunge for that. Yeah. So, and then absolutely it being minimal. So that's kind of yeah. that. The ambient <laughs> thing was funny because that was like when we did the hotel neon me Europe trip, that's yep. when I made those stickers because like I wanted merch to sell, but I, I was like, I, I'll make stickers. But then I'm like, I don't make stickers with my name on it. That's just like, that seemed just like a really bad idea. So, and I had been like thinking about that ambient, you know, ambient and finger quotes kind of thing and like how it really doesn't mean anything. And like people call things ambient that I really don't feel like fit in that label, but then who am I to decide to, but yeah. And then Virgil Abloh, the now deceased creator and art director for of Off-White had that graphic identity where he put the kind of straight quotes with like block Helvetica text. And so I just like, if I was going to find something that had quotes to riff off of, that was the best possible thing I could think of. So that's yeah. kind of like that. But I've been shocked at how those stickers just keep going. Like people keep, or I mean, yeah, it's like, I, I'm sure in no small part due to your representing the, the <laughs> quote ambient was, label. I was going to say they've traveled remarkably well. I, they're, they're, yeah. uh, they've reached kind of cult status at this point. I, I see them all over the place and I've even seen them. I've seen them copied. I've seen them, you know, ripped off, but it really struck a chord for whatever reason. I, I think you're so right. It is really funny how it's become like this catch-all term for anything that's just generally instrumental and vaguely atmospheric. It it doesn't really have a defined meaning anymore. And so I, I think that there's actually a very kind of like deep meaning to that sticker every time I look at it. It's kind of funny. Like, what even is this? I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's 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 great. And and you bring up the tour that we did together. I'm glad you did because that actually le- leads perfectly into my next question. I was going to ask you about, you know, your performance. I've seen you play many times. It's always amazing. We've done two tours together now, and I've seen you adapt your set in pretty drastic ways based on the surroundings wherever we're playing i'm thinking of the time you know we played at disjecta over there in portland and you had strung the tape loop up across the rafters there and then we played on that now infamous stage in berkeley um (laughs) (laughs) uh, and there you know there was a piano sitting on stage and you got up and played the piano at the end of the show and so And even, you know, I'm thinking too about that performance that you did for the Whitney Biennial and that incredible atrium space. You had your gear kind of lined up in a circular arrangement around you. And I'm wondering how do the surroundings that you play in impact your state of mind, the performance, what decisions you make? Does the kind of context of the room and the audience dictate some of the choices that you make or are you not really thinking about that in the moment? Um, no, those are all really good examples. Yeah, they, it very much does depend on 
the architecture of the space, what kind of sound system it is, like where the audience is going to be viewing. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that you've seen me play like probably close to a dozen times or something, but if I think if you were to put those performances side by side, I think there'd be like kind of language that would develop that things are referenced throughout different performances, but I would think that no two would be exactly the same, either in structure or in sound. Like, I mean, maybe the same palette of sounds or the same, you know, set of tools, but yeah, I very much take into consideration the space. I think that like, especially the ones where I'm using tape loops and in engaging like the architecture of space, whether it's like ceiling height or length of floor or anything, because of the way that I use the tape, like I'm using it like a, like a memory system. So I'm like, I can take bits of what I'm doing and dump it to the tape. And so then the length of the tape, so the height of the ceiling or whatever, kind of becomes the baseline of the time scale that I'm working in. So it's like how long it takes for something to come back around. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a matter of thinking about different ways of defining like time. And I think mm -hmm. that like, you know, somebody that might work with beat based music might think of like the tempo and length of bars or whatever, but it's like, I kind of wind up thinking at it, about it, like in, yeah, how long it takes for that loop to come back around. And then I can speed it up by, by doubling it or slow it down by having it. And so I'm working in divisions of that. So a lot of times I start with the tape recording at the fastest speed and I can drop it down then half the length. And now I've doubled the, the duration and dropped everything by an octave. And then as I build up more layers and I can do that again. So it's like, it's just a matter of kind of adjusting to that specific time scale. So I think that like the other part of the performance that like the, the part of performance that I enjoy is very much making it a transparent process. Like, so I start, you know, with nothing and then people get to see the way that it's built up. Yeah. Like using things that I brought with me or things that I found and then making the layers kind of evident as far as like what sound is creating what and then how it, how it builds and then how you can subtract it. And then the way that I interact with the tape changing the sound too. So yeah, I don't know. It's like this interesting additive process that's in a lot of ways, like the antithesis of my recorded material. And I think I do enjoy keeping those two disciplines separately, separate because they do feel like to two totally different skill sets to me. So you completely read my mind or texting <laughs> wavelength because literally the next question that I wanted to ask you was, does that differ? I just brought up all these examples of, you know, your stage performances and, and mm -hmm. adapting to a, to a venue per se, but I was going to, yeah, I was going to ask you, how does that differ on stage versus the studio? Or, you know, I've, I know you've, you've worked at a, a couple different residencies. Now you've done the Rauschenberg residency. You've done a couple other ones at the Bemis center, for instance. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you walk into a, 
a setting like that, I wonder, yeah, does that, do you go into those kinds of settings with a, with a plan or does the, does the setting that you're walking into in, in a studio or a residency kind of setting, does that shape what you're doing, I guess, versus the stage? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think that it, when you're thinking about a residency or some example where I've been given the time and space to work on something, I usually have a project, maybe two projects that I would like in my mind are things that I would like to accomplish while I'm there. And then, mm -hmm. but totally leaving it open to, you know, what else is going to happen in this space? Because I think especially like knowing myself and the way that I, I don't like to just beat my head against the wall, like if something's not working. So I think because I have like these different disciplines and other things that I can kind of jump in between, it sort of like winds up being a nice way to just keep momentum going without like just forcing myself to finish um, one specific project. So yeah, I might work on, you know, recording music for a while, but if, you know, if I'm getting tired of it or I'm not getting anywhere, then I can go work on more like visual art or do something else. So I think that with, yeah, with usually with the album or something like that, there's a project. I already have a concept in mind. And then, so it's like sort of like having some kind of guiding idea and then working towards that and then kind of taking steps to reevaluate whether it's still on that trajectory or if it's something else is changing and then kind of being open to those changes while also, you know, trying to honor the, the original concept. So yep. yeah, like an album like Lost, like I worked on that at the Rauschenberg residency and that had a very specific concept in mind. But um, a lot of the tracks that didn't fit with that wound up as um, tracks on Lowlands, the album mm -hmm. that I did with Taylor, um, which is the only one that we've done remotely. And so it was kind of nice because I could jump between those two projects and kind of keep keep going. So I had like my solo one, which was very hyper specific in what I wanted to include or what I wanted to exclude, I guess, at that point. And then I could reuse the some of the building blocks that didn't quite fit with Lowland. So to me, they're almost like sister records because they were done at the same time, but have oh, like that's awesome. I had different no voices. Idea. Yeah, yeah. No um, idea. Yeah, that I love that. I love both those albums. Oh, thank you. Probably my two favorite in your in your whole catalog, to be honest with you. So oh, that's thanks. really interesting to to make the connection. I had no idea. Hm. Yeah, I think there's <laughs> I think there's one guitar sample that is on both records by accident. And it was like I realized it only after like way after the fact. And I don't even know that anyone else would notice it, but like <laughs> I was like, oh shit, that's, that's I'm just awesome. geez, I'm gonna go listen really closely now. <laughs> yeah, it's an Easter egg. But yeah, I, I think that like like as far as performance versus recorded material, like I think that the performance is something that's like very specific to that moment in time and it only really is gonna exist in that time. And then with an album, I wind up maybe like maybe it would start in a similar process as far as the additive building, but then it really is like the 
the compositions really take place in the editing phase. So a lot of it is just like doing these long form improvisations and just cutting, 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 cutting everything down until like, it's just very specific to what I want to be Mm. included in there. So yeah, I don't know. They're like, they're totally different to me. And I think that I, I both, I enjoy both um, a lot, but I'm just like, it, I'm just way slower with finishing solo projects than like collaborations also because of that. Like I just, yeah. When I'm left to my own devices, if I don't have a hardcore deadline, it's just like, it's hard (laughs) to get motivated. So. Yeah. And so you brought up the, you brought up Lowlands with Taylor and then you just mentioned the collaborative work that you do too. And so I, I want to dig into that a little bit. I know you've been pretty active with collaborations recently you you had that new low flying owls record that you Mm did i've seen you playing and and recording a lot with wildcard recently too and then obviously you've done plenty of stuff with with taylor and with simon scott and you know a bunch of other folks but i'm wondering do you do you approach a project like that differently when you know you're going to have a collaborator in the room or do you find that you you have kind of inclinations or tendencies that still come through in a setting like that. How much does working with a collaborator alter your approach or affect your process? Um, I mean, working with a collaborator is really like freeing for me in a lot of ways, because I think as a solo artist or solo improviser, it's like, there's no one to blame but yourself. (laughs) (laughs) if that makes sense and so it absolutely does yeah yeah so then when you have somebody else to play off of it's like it's it's kind of a like lightening the load in a way because like then I can have something to respond to I think part of the reason why I wind up with these like extended tape loop things it's because like I'm kind of doing it like collaborating with myself or improvising with myself from a different period of time like so it's like Mm. you know like it it gives me something to respond to like i guess is the short answer but so with a collaboration um i haven't done that many remote collaborations actually like most of them have been in person like the Mm. album i did with simon and all of the ones with taylor except for lowlands have been in person but there's something about the remote ones that are like a kind of different thing, especially if you're not the one initiating it. I think that the low flying owls one is a good example. Like I came into it after almost everybody had already played their parts. And so Hmm. I kind of like listened to the raw mixes and I was like, I know there's not space for me here. Like, I don't know what what to do in this space. And so that's why I wound up playing drums and vibraphone and bass on that. Cause like it was, it was already a well-structured, beautiful drifty kind of record, which I think was expected from like the kind of between collaboration history as far as 12K stuff goes. And so I kind of, threw a monkey wrench into the whole thing by like playing drums on, on like the things. And like, I didn't really, I don't think I, I don't remember I told Taylor and Steven that that's what I was going to do. I think I just sent the recordings to them and like, they're just like, Oh, now we have to rethink this whole thing. Like all this like 
so it was, it was kind of funny, but I really like it. Like, I think that it, it turned out, it turned out great. But like, yeah, trying to play along with like five other people who are all kind of doing their own thing was definitely a challenging thing. But yeah, I like it. I don't know. It was like, I know the other thing that's nice about collaboration, especially in like a live setting is like, you don't need to play all the time. Mm-hmm. Like that's like the, like with wildcard, that's one thing that I love is like, you know, I hear something that like Bill is doing or that Paul's doing and it's like so good. And then I'm just like, okay, I just want to listen to that for a while, you know, and then then, get to be a listener. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll like fade out what I'm doing. And then maybe after I absorb it for a while, I can think of like something that I would want to contribute Yeah, or play off of or something. But it's, yeah, like when you're not the sole person responsible for making all the sound, it's it's really liberating. Like <laughs> I totally get it. Yeah, as someone who plays in a trio most of the time, and I have a number of duo collaborations that I do. Yeah, I, um, I I thrive off that energy. So yeah, I I was very curious to hear your perspective on that, um, and especially on the on the low flying owls record. Like, yeah, the the drums was that was such a cool touch and an, a very unexpected thing like you said given the given the personnel given the label you come in with a lot of expectations there and so that was i think a really a really beautiful curveball <laughs> for, for everybody <laughs> to hear and i really liked that and correct me if i'm wrong but you have a you have a history as a drummer right i i think i remember yeah. talking with you about this at one point but you you grew up playing drums if i remember correctly yeah, I when I first started playing music like as a teenager, I played with two friends and that was like I I jumped just straight into playing music like without taking lessons or doing anything like it was about making music like with people like making and being in the same space with people and making sound and we all switched instruments between guitar, bass and drums and it was a great way to learn. Like, I think that, I think it's hindered me in a lot of ways, but it's also made me not hesitate about picking up a instrument that I don't know how to play. (laughs) But yeah, so then I, I did that for a lot of years. And then when I moved to Olympia, Washington and I mean, in college, I brought my drums with me. And then because it's always like, hard to find people to play drums and I had a house with a basement you know all of a sudden I was playing in like five different bands I'm like (laughs) it was fun it was great you know I like I played in like a like a kind of mostly instrumental math rocky band which really challenged my like abilities to think about rhythm and and time scale and everything like we had played really long songs with like lots of different time changes and weird things happening. And then I played in like hardcore bands and like one kind of like almost like a noisy new wave band, different things. Like it was all kind of like, um, yeah, different, all different styles. And it was, it was great. And I got to be really good, like, or at least what I thought was good at the time. I would still play shows and be like, oh, I'm the worst drummer at this show, you know? And like, that was always kind of a bad feeling, but at the same time I was like, okay, I can be better. But (laughs) yeah, after moving to Portland, I moved into an apartment and then I just didn't like have space to play drums anymore. And so then I kind of, that's when I sort of switched to doing more quieter headphone kind of music. Um, I was always doing like kind of four track stuff forever, but, but yeah, I kind of took 
like a 10 year break from playing drums. I played a little bit of drums in Unrecognizable Now, which was the duo that I have with my friend Matt Jones. And we kind of switched between like, like I played baritone guitar and we did laptop stuff. And then he played guitar and keyboards. And then I would get on the drums now and then. And Ted Ladera's played with us quite a bit yep. uh, doing cello and stuff. So it was like kind of an ensemble, even though it was just the two of us in the middle. But yeah. Um, yeah. And so I like, I still have my drums. They're set up right now, but I just don't play nearly as much as I would like to. That's just how hard. I feel with bass these days. Yeah. I grew up a bass yeah. player playing like, and I th- I'm glad you brought up those experiences. I think that those are all, those are all really valuable. I think I look back on a lot of that stuff that I, the bands I played in, in high school, I was so far out of my depth and way out of my league in terms of the, the <laughs> skill level of the guys I was playing with. I mean, I, they were, you know, playing circles around me, but I think you mentioned it earlier. It, it really taught me more than anything to, to not be scared of mm-hmm. picking up an instrument, even if I don't feel like I'm personally that competent on it. I, I do think there's a lot to be said for the lessons that are learned when you're face to face with other people in the same room playing music together. Yeah, that, those were hugely valuable for me and definitely set the tone for how I prefer to work in terms of collaborating with people rather than oh, totally. being in my head all the time <laughs> with solo stuff. So totally resonate with with those stories there. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that like playing with other people especially if they're out of your out of your league skill wise like you can just listen and like there's yeah. no shame in being like minimal or whatever like it's yeah. like yep like i just went i went and saw codeine in that last reunion tour and like you know i was standing on steven's side and just watching like him play bass and i'm like oh my god it's like so like (laughs) it's so restrained and so simple but it's so good like there's nothing that's like virtuosic about it it's like the restraint is what's virtuosic you know like and so yeah i i'm a big fan of like that like i mean like mo tucker's drumming or anything you know it's like like sure yep there's there's something to be said about the person that has like can just hold it down there might not be the flashiest, but it's like if they can just like be solid and hold it down, like that's that's great. You know, like it's an important role. Yeah, to play. and then, yeah, you you learn to listen and leave space for other people that way too. So Completely. Yeah, yeah. It it changes a lot of things when you figure that out. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. So I'd be remiss if I, you know, in a Marcus Fisher interview, I've got to ask about. Um, tape looping at some point in more specificity. So I'm curious about, I was trying to think of how to ask this question exactly, but I think, you know, you've been synonymous with the Nagra tape loops for a long time. I think you were doing that like before it was cool on Instagram and back when the machines didn't cost, you know, $10,000 or whatever the hell they're going for now on reverb. I don't even know, but I'm wondering, do you still think, do you still think of the tape as like kind of the backbone of what you do. I know you were talking about earlier, you you can walk into a room and think of like time scale when you look at a loop taking up space. That's a little different than I've heard other people describe. Most people refer back to like the the nostalgic sound of a tape mm-hmm. and like the warble and all that. But to think of it as in a more physical sense as like a time scale to me is really interesting and really fascinating. Would you still say that that's kind of your primary kind of focus musically is on 
on the tape loop as as like a manipulated time scale or are there other pieces of equipment other kind of gear that you're getting into these days that are starting to have more of an influence on what you do yeah i mean that's a good question like the i guess the tape thing it's like for me that's like i before i could even play an instrument i was using like tape recorders that was like yeah <laughs> that was like sort of my intro into like sound world like my dad had a bunch of tape recorders as a kid and i got into like taping stuff off the radio and like like making you know like kind of collages like they'd be like it might be a song and then it'd be like some stuff off the radio and you know like just random yep. kind of things and so i really got into that as like a way of like making and reproducing sound and so for me it still is that it's a tool but because it's like one of the things that I've used the longest, it feels comfortable and still surprising. Like I can know for the most part what's going to come out of it. But I, especially when you're dealing with like loops and dropping things in as far as like overdubbing or erasing and everything, like it can still be surprising and it kind of forces you to make choices that, you know, there's not undo. And so it's like, you, you're making a choice and you have to accept that choice and mm. continue uh, with it. Like, yeah, like the fact that I can hit a, a really off note on like a two minute <laughs> loop and then have to wait for it to come back around and really make the choices to like, if that's like, <laughs> now am I, have I changed, have I slowly decided to change the key of what I'm playing in based on that one note, you know, that's like, those are like real choices that like that have to be made. And like in the live situation, like I have to accept it. So it's like, I know it's coming back around based on, um, like I usually use a piece of colored tape for the splice so I can always see where it's coming, keep my eye on it. And so, yeah, I don't know. So I think it's kind of that thing. Like, it's like, these are, there's consequences to these actions. (laughs) But yeah, like as far as the sound of it specifically, I do like the sound and I like that it can be, you know, it can take signal at vastly different levels and and have it come out all right. Like, yeah, you could like if you saturate it, it sounds great. If it's quiet, it sounds great. And then especially if there's if you're doing kind of sound on sound, it's a more dynamic way of overdubbing in a way. Like there's some things you can hit it really hard in some specific frequency and it'll persist generation after generation after generation where it's something else you might play like in a lower register that will just be gone the next time it comes around like it can't overpower the the record head as it comes back around so it's just like there's things about it that are surprising in that way um as far as other things that kind of like catch my eye i think that i like I jump back and forth between different things and there's a lot of things that like I wind up doing stuff with that never winds up in a performance or in a or in on a recording but it's like something that's just a way for me to like escape for a little while like sure. I think the yep. the Bukala easel command thing is like that's something that I've been I've had it for a couple years now and it's like I've been so on the fence a bunch of times about whether I should sell it or not. Cause like, um, I've never really like, I don't know. It's still, it still is a 
challenging me in in a way. And I think I kind of like it for that. But at the same time, I'm like, not sure if, if it like fits in my workflow, shall we say, or, sure. or a sonic palette or anything like, but I don't know, like, I mean, on, like on the Substack thing, like I posted that little clip at the end of my last entry that was just some Bukula thing. And I think that that might be this, the first time I've shared anything that, that I've done with it. Yeah. And, uh, and that's I, kind of why I asked the question was I, mm-hmm. I, I saw that post and it, it instantly came to mind, you know, I, because I, I always think of you as, you know, guitar and tape and, mm-hmm. you know, modular stuff is in there too, obviously. And the, I, you know, you work a lot with field recordings and things like that, but I don't know if that, you know, if anything in the last couple of years, I know I personally have kind of gone deeper and deeper in like the Octatrack stuff and totally um, yeah. that has like totally shaped the way I'm doing things now. So I was curious, yeah, if, if the Bukla is here to stay, if we might see that come up on other things in the future. Yeah. I don't, it's, I was having this conversation with a friend a while ago about how like taste is like a prison. <laughs> like you, you know, like you've got a certain aesthetic or something and then you're just like stuck like you can't like you know it's just like like why does some one thing make it and another one doesn't or like whatever it's just like or you've just immediately cut yourself off from some certain amount of possibilities so yeah yeah. i i kind of feel like for me some of it has to do with that like i'm like i'm just like i'm just imprisoned myself by like deciding that like none of those sounds fit like what I want to, you know, and it's just like, I've done great things with it in wildcard and I feel like it fits better. Right. Right. There than in my solo stuff. And like, and maybe that's just a stupid way of thinking, you know, like, like I'm not doing anything else. So I might as well share more of that stuff. I I don't know. It's like, yeah, there's certain things like that I've gone through or I'm like, okay, I'm doing the same thing on these 10 different tools and kind of just like figuring out how to do it. And maybe it's better to just get out of that altogether. Like, yeah. Like what I do with the Octatrack is the same exact thing that I do with the ER 301, which is the same thing that I was doing. You know, it's just like, it's all just like, I find these workflows where I'm like, Oh yeah. Can I yeah. record this, but then manipulate it in these three different ways. And then, yeah, it's just like a, it's kind of a funny way of, of like doing things like rather than taking each thing as an instrument to itself and kind of working on it. I was, <laughs> I was that. kind of laughing to myself, a, a very similar like thought crossed my mind the other day. I was, I've been playing around a lot with software from a company called Slate Nash that produces these really beautiful contact libraries. And they came mm-hmm. out with a new one recently and it's very much built around, not totally atonal, but very like harsh, I guess, for lack of a better term, samples, things that I'm not used to working with. And so, you know, I, I caught myself the other night, I was sitting there, you know, playing around with it for a couple hours. And like, here I am trying to like, work this like, beast of an instrument into <laughs> like my typical like soft kind of gentle droney stuff that I do and I'm like what what am I doing here I don't I'm like trying to like force this thing to fit like you said the prison of my personal taste yeah and I just I had to laugh out loud as I was doing it because I'm like 
man, I'm just never going to get out of this hole. I, I've, like, <laughs> <laughs> I've built this, you know, castle for myself that I'm never going to be able to leave, but I'm trying, I'm trying to push yeah. the boundaries, but <laughs> I, I think that that's, it's, it's good. I mean, the first step is like recognizing that, I guess, yeah. you know, you're just like, yep. oh yeah, this is the same kind of like thing or what, I don't know. It's like, it is interesting. Like, um, when you realize that you're just like, in this like kind of yeah you've you've put yourself in a box in a weird way and that's right. like not like it doesn't feel great <laughs> <laughs> no it doesn't but <laughs> but yeah i don't know like I, I i struggle with that stuff like i i've done like a lot of different things over the years and then i found a tape that like i had recorded you know in the 1990s that was like all on four track with like using very similar production techniques to now and i was like i'm like oh my god this sounds like i could have done this like a year ago or whatever and i'm just like, that like it, oh, in some ways i was like oh okay i feel kind of justified that the the tastes of the world kind of came around to my side or whatever like like but at the same time i was like oh like i've made very little growth in my solo work <laughs> <laughs> over the like, years if like if that's like it's dangerous it for me to think about it too long i start to doubt myself yeah but yeah i, I mean yeah. i think there is i think there is a lot of value though and a lot of importance in figuring out yeah who you are yeah like I, you can oh, yeah. mm -hmm. try to fight yourself for ages trying to bend yourself into a corner that you just you're just not going to fit and you know i i think there's i think it's worth recognizing what your strengths are to put a positive spin on it so <laughs> no, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's like you like put your ten thousand hours into making yeah. minimal grunge or whatever, and you're gonna, <laughs> gonna be there. But yeah, no, I, I think that it's yeah, recognizing those things and then like kind of acknowledging it and then choosing where you go from there is like kind of interesting, um, right? But yeah, I mean, like other things, like like that. I did that whole like really long album last year that was like basically all mpc 1000 and so it's like that was definitely me trying to although like the sound wise it probably sounds very similar to the outside listener to like everything else that i've done but to me the process was so different and then also like putting up these kind of guidelines as to what like the working method and then like the duration and all those things. So it's like every track was just going to be 12 minutes. And I was yep. like going to do no overdubbing or editing other than chopping the ends off. You know, it was going to be what it's going to be. And like single instrument kind of situation. And that was like, yeah, it felt good. Like, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Taylor wrote the other day and said that he's still been listening to it. Like, like every night or whatever this this week yeah. so it's so funny because again you've read my mind that after the previous question i asked my next bullet point on my little list here was <laughs> ask about dodecalogues <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, because i because i did really want to yeah i wanted to ask you about that because i i also love the album i thought it was thought it was really beautiful i love the concept 12 12 minute pieces with one instrument you it was all npc right just a single instrument yeah i mean it was like it's like that's a like it was all played on the mpc but the samples came from like you know like it'd sure. be like it was yep. basically 
OP1 and, and MPC or like guitar and MPC kind of thing. But it was like all the, it was all played by hand on the MPC. So like not, not sequencing mm. anything. Cause you know yep. that I, I'm really bad at sequencing. So yeah, but it was like using those like 16 pads to kind of play samples and then um, kind of the way that that it's set up, like you can have like loops, you can have one shots and all that stuff like in all mapped to the different pads or like different gate modes and note repeats and different stuff. But yeah, it was like kind of just like sitting there with the MPC in my lap and then just playing for... 12 minutes. That's yeah. exactly how I kind of pictured it in my head because I, I know you had meant, I know you've mentioned to me before we've talked about Octatrack stuff for, mm -hmm. you know, a long time and you've it always cracks me up how you never hit play on it, which is mind blowing <laughs> to me. But to know that, to know that Dodecalog specifically that was played manually, I think it did add something to the way that I heard it. I was, it kind of added a little bit of context in terms of mm. thinking about something like a sampler being, you know, a very kind of active and engaging instrument that you can play and that you can work with. I think it added a lot to that album for me personally, knowing that mm. it was not sequenced material, that it was, that it was manually manipulated over time. Just wanted to mention that because I, yeah. I think it's, yeah, a really, a really impressive work in that context. Hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah. I feel like you could like, there was a lot of things that I could do when taking that approach that I wouldn't have been able to do with sequencing in real time. Cause like you're locked into like, like I was saying, like number of bars or whatever. And like that, like I could use, yeah, I could use the sliders to kind of address the loop length of different samples simultaneously. So it's like, you could, you can change the A and B point, like the, the, loop in and loop out of a sample on these two faders that are on the side. But then, so if you put like five different samples in there and they all have different lengths and that you're operating that on all five that you're holding down at the same time, mm. those have radically different time scales over the throw of the fader. Like, so if you have like a, a four second sample or something like the, you know, you've got all kinds of weird granularity in there and then if you have like a minute long sample like that's like way coarser so it was really interesting to play with it keeping that in mind of like like i know that this pad is going to be a really short loop now because i because i've condensed it down but then i did that in order to find the sweet spot of this other you know so it was like it was really interesting kind of using that as a like as a hand played instrument like that and then with aftertouch and you have like filters and LFOs on everything. So it's like, it was really, it's a really expressive instrument. Yeah. I, it made me think about, you know, the, the MPC instrument myself. Cause I, I've tried, I haven't tried a thousand, 1000 before I've tried mm -hmm. a couple of the, the later ones like yeah. the live and the, the other ones to come out to that, but I've never gotten along with that. Um, interface very well but it made me want to <laughs> give it another shot to be honest with you yeah i mean the the one and the and the live or whatever like i just i had a one and i was like frustrated that it didn't do i was like oh it'll probably do all the things that the 1000 does plus mm. all this other stuff and it like 
it didn't like 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 I couldn't have like a one shot and a loop on the same grid of pads like you can with the like you were like oh you, okay. this is a drum program this is a you know whatever and like and then as far as like the interface goes I was like I might as well just be using live for this stuff <laughs> like it was just like <laughs> like it got to it was like frustrating and then all and it was just trying to be too many things and I think that the like yeah the one thousand is like pretty amazing because they're they're pretty cheap if you yeah. find like i think i yeah. found mine for you know under 300 dollars, and then there's like you can fix them with like parts that you can buy online like so it's like mine needed some buttons to be replaced and it, that cost me like 20 dollars or something and then i upgraded the pads and then i did this and did that and like it's like it is like a user serviceable instrument which is like just doesn't it's not a thing anymore I so know. it's like <laughs> it drives me nuts yeah uh, yeah especially yeah because i'm deep in the apple ecosystem at this point I, and i still have fond memories of when you were able to open it up and add more ram and up update replace the, the battery drive yeah, yeah replace the battery exactly yeah. yeah so that kind of stuff feels like such a luxury now when yeah. it's available <laughs> but yeah you could make choices after the fact rather than like Right. sinking all your money into something when you first bought it like right yeah and are we right to assume that there will be more volumes of that series i'm very optimistic because you titled it volume one yeah so i gotta ask the question yeah i have i probably could compile a second one from other stuff that i recorded last year but i listened to some of that and i was like thought that it sounded too similar to the last one. So I'm like kind of, I'm thinking this year I'm going to pick a different kind of methodology. Um, mm. um, similar framework, but maybe a diff pick a different instrument or do something. So yeah, maybe I should do something with the Bukala to yeah. justify its existence <laughs> in, my, in my crowded studio. But, yeah. 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 Well, I next wanted to ask you about some of the installation work that you do, because I think it's, to me, a really impressive body of work that you've built as a solo artist, as a collaborator with the, you know, residencies that you've done and also the installations that you've set up. I know you have one ongoing now at Oregon Contemporary, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yeah, um, which was Disjecta. Yeah. Okay. I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah. I, I was going to say, I recognize that address, but <laughs> yeah. it's a really profound work. I mean, I, I'm wondering if you can kind of talk through that a little bit, just for those who aren't familiar with it, but I mean, you're essentially, you, to sum it up way too short and way too simply, you've taken gun violence data and created a, a graphic score out of that. So can you explain a little bit about how you were thinking through that? Yeah, totally. Yeah, in 2022, I was getting ready to do the Bemis Center Sound Art and Experimental Music Residency and working on like coming I had I had a couple of projects in mind that I wanted to work on while I was there, but then you know, there were there just kept being more like more and more shootings and things that were that I was like just like struggling with just being inundated with this news and I started really looking into the information like being curious about 
how much it was growing. These incidents are in, like increasing in frequency. And then I first started looking at gun violence in general. And so like looking at like how after the assault weapons ban was lifted, how like there was this exponential rise, especially in shootings using the, the AR-15. And that was like kind of then sent me down this other path of like looking at mass shootings. And I originally was going to do a project about gun violence, but it's insane to say that the amount of data that was there on like shootings in the United States was simply too overwhelming for me to like do anything with that data. Like it would have taken me years to like do it. And so the shitty compromise was just looking at mass shootings. And so mass shootings are considered when incident where four or more people are killed or injured and and not in the perpetration of a crime so it's like Mm -hmm. it's not like somebody robs a bank and they like like four people get injured or whatever like that's not on the list like these are just you know these kind of random occurrences that that happen in this country and literally no nowhere else yeah and so I took, I was going to go from like um, the point where the assault weapons ban was lifted till present day. And that was too overwhelming too. (laughs) Like it was like, like I kept, I started by making these charts and I kept having, you know, like you set the, like the ceiling and the floor to make like graphs and the graph was, I was going month by month. I kept having to raise the ceiling. Wow. And so like, that's like, you know, then it kind of diminished the, you know, there was like, when the chart was getting really tiny, at the point where there was like, five people being killed, or six people or 10 people, you know, because you had an incident like the one in Las Vegas, where like, it was an insane amount, and it was diminishing these other loss of life. So yeah, it was it was all a really like, a really dark rabbit hole to go down. But so yeah, I, I made these graphs based on on data for the year 2022 mass shootings in the US and from that i used the charts as a graphic score to make 12 pieces of music for this installation that i did the first 10 months of it i showed at bemis in the fall of 2022 and then the last two i completed for the current exhibition and so it's a piece called Mass, and it's like an arc of 12 speakers sitting on these concrete pilings. And in each speaker, there's like a handful of spent bullet casings. And then, so depending on how active that particular month was, like, so in each four minute movement represents a month. So depending on the number of people killed or injured across, you know, the the month worth of of information cut down to four minutes you know there's more or less activity as far as rattling these spent bullet casings and so there's like a it's a 14 channel installation there's 12 of these speakers with the bullet casings and there's a subwoofer and then there's a speaker with the voice of this artist Senga Dengudi who's a friend of mine who is an amazing woman she's like the same age as my mom and she's in her 80s 
And she was one of these artists that was featured in this exhibition at the Brooklyn Art Museum mm. that was called Radical Black Women of the 70s. And it, she was like a sculptor and performance artist in LA in the 70s and did some really amazing work. But I love her voice. Her voice was on the that Words of Concern piece. That's the tape yep. piece that the Whitney Museum yep. purchased for the biennial. And so, yeah, it's so then she reads the name of each month and then it enters into this piece of, of music that engages the, the speakers to rattle the bullet casings. And it winds up being this kind of, it's a pretty visceral experience. Like it's not supposed to mimic like what it would be like to be in a mass shooting or there's no sounds that sound like gunshots or anything. It's all just sine waves and white noise are the only things. And so like where most of the music that I do tends to be melodic, like the stuff in that is very dissonant. And it's because in order to get the speakers to rattle the, the bullet casings, I needed the thing that worked the best was clashing frequencies, one modulating another, and then you'd get more activity. Like if you're jumping on the on a trampoline with a friend, and you, you know, when you get just out of sync and one person goes launching off, like <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very much that interaction. <laughs> and so it wound up being dissonant and which also kind of serves the, the, the work itself. So yeah. it's kind of like haunting with these like low bass tones and then these other frequencies that kind of slide up to pitch. And, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, I wish that it came across better in video just because so much of it is like being like your whole body being affected by the low frequency and then seeing right. the whole thing. But yeah. And thanks for describing it because I, I do think it is, you know, even, even on paper, it, it struck me and mm. I will definitely, I'll definitely link to yeah some of the information and, and pages that are cool. out there kind of describing it because I think it's really important for people to take a look at that. And really it, it struck me. So was curious to hear your, your thought and your process behind it. So thanks for that. Yeah. I, I wish I was closer and could go see it myself. <laughs> I know. Yeah. We're in the last 10 days now of the show, which is like, it had a good run. Like it was, it's been up since November. So it had like a longer than usual time for an exhibition. And I'm like, I've been really happy with the way it turned out. And then, you know, the conversations that it's led to, like it's, it's been, it's been great mm -hmm. to have some really good talks with people about yeah. their own personal experiences, not just with gun violence, but it's with like loss in general. Like right. that's like the theme of the show is, or the title of the show is, what was lost and what remains. And so it's kind of like thinking about we're transformed by experiences. And that's like, in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's just like, yeah, you like, what do you choose to do with it? So like, that's like all this information that I had, like I, you know, I I've been lucky enough to not have lost anyone in a mass shooting, but that's definitely not the case for a lot of America. And I think also being like first generation American, like with my parents, are both immigrants and just thinking about how weird it is that looking objectively at the United States as being like this place where like this thing happens and nobody right. does, does exactly. anything about it. It just feels really weird. Like, yeah. you know, they made like helmet laws to protect kids. Like mm -hmm. there's yeah. Seatbelt laws, seat belts, which happen, yeah. you know, exactly. like Peloton eats the family dog and there's people go into <laughs> 
an uproar about it. Like it's like that kind of thing. There's a lot to to find objectionable about like yeah, the way that absolutely the the lack of handling of of gun violence in this country. Like yeah. it's so it's like yeah that my way of coping with it was like creating something that kind of addressed it while trying to spark conversations about this with other people. So sure. I think that like you had mentioned having the outlet of music and then also then doing art. I think for me, like I grew up like in the kind of DIY punk scene of the nineties. And like, you're not going to, you're not going to believe when I say this, but (laughs) the next question, (laughs) you've anticipated my next question nearly perfectly. That's hilarious. I was going to ask you, yeah, I know you've got a punk rock background. How does that manifest in your current practice? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that that's like, that's it. Like I've had this conversation with Jan Novak before and like where it's like ambient music as a platform is like, like it's not an easy place to make a political statement. And that's, you know, it's maybe making an environmental statement or something that people can talk about, like their use of field recordings or this or that. But, but yeah, I think that for me, like art and like politics and music and everything is very intertwined in this way, Mm -hmm. just from like the way that I came to it. And so I think the fact that I can use sound and sound art and my installations or other things in order to address things that are like inherently more political than my music on the surface level, like has been like really like, it's almost like a way that I can kind of justify that (laughs) it it existing in this way. I don't know. It's like, (laughs) I, I struggle with saying that any of it is worth, existing but there's yeah i mean it's like at least it's like given like a voice or a platform to things that i think are worthy to be discussed further in some way or another i love that yeah and and i think i and i specifically asked these two questions are tied together to Mm -hmm. me and i wanted to ask about them because i do think that the work you do with your installations and what you've just described here i do think it's an important part of your resume you know it's easy to gloss over that stuff but as you know making the kind of music that we do we don't really have like you say clear opportunities to kind of make statements on things like that things of real importance in my mind and i'm kind of at a point personally i don't know if you would feel the same but i'm getting less i don't know patient with kind of surface level art and music in general like i like to know the human that's behind it i like to know Mm. the thoughts and the intentions behind it and especially now you know with what's going on in in gaza and what's happening here with like there are all these issues that i i don't know we have an option to really be silent on at this point so i do think it is important to at least you know think about it and even if you can't directly voice it with the music that you make i i do think it it enters into my consciousness you know as an artist when i'm making stuff i do think about topics like that so it's interesting you know i don't do installation work and i'm not you know having pieces sold to the whitney biennial so i think it's it's a really cool thing to see you get those platforms and the opportunities to surface these these topics yeah, thanks. I I feel super fortunate and to have had those opportunities and it is like um yeah, it's it's not an easy thing and I feel like I've really been lucky 
to have been like had a platform, you know, in, in several kind of high profile things like that have been really, really amazing. And like that, yeah, like the, the piece that was in the Whitney was like, was made out of like fear and frustration and mm-hmm. like, kind of like, uh, like what the fuck is going to happen kind of thing. And it was a very specific snapshot in time, um, made on the literal eve of the, um, 2017 inauguration. Um, and, you know, just kind of like a way of bonding with these other artists that I was at the Rauschenberg residency with. And so we all kind of voiced our biggest fears and then I captured it on tape. And then it's like, yeah. was yeah. the most fucked up thing was like, really just like hearing it in 2019, you know, in, in that gallery space and just being like, like, cause at the time when, when it was made, I thought it was like kind of like alarmist or like sure. maybe yeah. exaggerated or whatever. And I'm just like, Holy fuck, like everything yeah. like in this has yeah. come true and more, you know? And it's like, it's, yeah, I don't know. I think that it would, that work resonated with a lot of people just because of like, I mean, it was like in a way the bingo card of everything that like yeah. could have gone wrong in a way, <laughs> but it yeah. still had like a a really nice like like you're not alone in in feeling these kind of things message. Yeah. I think like, and then also was like it's like was a checklist of the things that we need to try to defend and you know if you care about these things like keep your eye on it kind of thing like rather than just let it go yeah. like are your individual freedoms quietly go slipping away you know under somebody else's watch so i think that that's been it was an important work for me for that just to keep myself grounded in it all too because like i tend to kind of go down <laughs> the dark rabbit hole of things um i'm so, right there with you yeah yeah absolutely I mean, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it's nice to have that outlet, and it's also interesting to, as time goes on, like the people who like a lot of people that know me for music don't know about the art stuff, and vice versa. Like, yeah, that was like the Whitney people didn't know that like I like recorded and performed music when I was admitted. And when they found it out, they're like, oh, would you want to perform? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to. You know, so it's like that opportunity was was like it just fell in my lap after being kind of like brought in for a completely different reason. So, yeah, that's um, so yeah, that's so funny. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, that was really an amazing performance. Yeah, I'll definitely oh, link to that in show notes or whatever here so people can watch that again. But yeah. That's like the probably the most perfect version of that particular thing that I was doing at that time. Yeah. And it got captured like beautifully on multi-camera video and everything. It was like it's pretty it's pretty nice to have like as a as a document of that. Cause like yeah, I don't think that I have many I don't have anything similar that I could like share with people, you know. It's like I'm terrible at good. archiving and documenting my stuff. Yeah. So yeah. I, that's a that's a cool memento to to come away with totally i guess just to wrap up our time here keeping an eye on the clock i just wanted to ask a general question about you know the year ahead it's 
shocking that we're already through January, but there's still 11 months left here. So <laughs> what what's kind of on the horizon for you, even if it's not this year, even in like the you know next few years? Um, curious what you have your eye towards, if anything. I'm starting another solo record with Taylor. Oh, great! Yep, this month, and we're going to try to do it in a month, and we're we are doing it remote, so it'll be like kind of. Um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. We have a plan, so that's that's good. And yep, I'm wrapping up the art show at Oregon Contemporary this weekend. I'm doing an artist talk with Stephanie Schneider, who's the curator of the Cooley Gallery at Reed College. So we're going to have that talk. And then all every first Saturday, I've been having different artists perform these graphic scores that I made that are in the show. So this month, it's going to be John Nekras, who's a really amazing drummer. He's my favorite drummer in Portland. He has a duo called Methods Body that has a record out on Beacon Sound right now. And they're great. Like he's he's very like textural and and creative percussionist and drummer. So he's gonna be working with one of the scores. Last month we had Paul Dickow and David Chandler doing a duo. They did um like a kind of live drawing interactive thing like where they traced over one of the scores that they had printed out really huge on a table and David wore like a brain monitor thing that translated his <laughs> brain activity to like some audio mulch patch that Paul had made. It was like, it was pretty great. And I had Christy Denton and Jamandria Harris played the month before, you know, it was like, so it's been, it's been a great way to get people performing in an art context who I think deserve that, you know, like change of the, the yeah. I, I found for myself, like the way that people view things in an art context is different than they would view things or hear things in like a club or a traditional music venue. So that's like my big thing. Like for me, like when I stopped, playing in bars and stuff that was like marked a huge shift in the way that I approached my own music. So it's been, yeah, to do that with other people is pretty awesome. Yeah. But yeah. And then I've got a sound piece that's coming up in the Oregon artist biennial, which is happening this spring. And then mm -hmm. another sound installation at university of Oregon down in Eugene in May. Okay. Yeah, may. So, and then hopefully somewhere along the line, I can work on making another solo record because it's been a lot of years since I've made like a proper one, not counting yeah. like dodecalogues or something, but yeah, yeah, we're, we're eagerly awaiting. I can tell you that <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of material, no but I just like, yeah, no I'm like, I need to, I feel like I need to start from scratch. So I totally um, get it. But yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to get back into performing again, solo stuff. Like I, man, I feel like since that Europe tour, yeah, I really didn't like, cause then not long after that was the start of the pandemic. So yeah, I played three times or four times since the start of the pandemic and that was it. <laughs> so it's yeah. been like, yeah. and that would be like, that'd be like 
two months for me before, but yeah, yeah. we, yeah, I think it was like our, our tour in Europe was in September of 2019 September. and mm-hmm. then, yeah. in in March all hell broke loose. <laughs> yeah, so, totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We've only yeah. done a couple of things since then. Uh, I can tell you, it definitely feels a lot different than 2019. Yeah. I was, I was so happy to be able to catch you guys in New York. Um, yes. Yep. At public record. Cause like, yeah, that was such a awesome coincidence, you know, that that was fine. Yeah, we'll we'll get you out east sometime. We can play it together. That's oh, probably my favorite room on the entire coast. So. Yeah, I would love to play there. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's like it's funny. It's like I my last show in Portland before the pandemic started was on Leap Day. Mm. I played with a duo with Ted Ladaris at at Beacon Sound. So it was February yep. 29th. And this year is another leap year. So that's like, (laughs) like four years, like went by that. Like, it's like, it's really fucked up when you like think about it. Like that's, it's the same Super Bowl matchup. It's the same presidential election candidates. It's, it's a leap year again. All the Uh, stars are aligning. So. (laughs) Oh my God. I hope it's not the case, but. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, uh, monkeypox is going to come. <laughs> God, who knows? Well, it was wonderful to talk with you, Marcus. Thanks so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. It. Thanks for inviting me in. Thanks for listening to the Sound Methods podcast. For more information about Marcus and his music, please check out the show notes or the Substack page, or visit his website at mapmap.ch. Thanks for being here and see you next time.